10,000 years ago, all around the world, our ancestors were discovering agriculture, deliberate cultivation of plants and livestock to feed their communities. Human civilizations and agriculture go hand in hand, contributing to our species' ability to thrive and our population to grow. And ever since then, we've been on a journey to bring technology into agriculture, to make it more productive and more efficient. As in every other sphere, advancements in technology in the 20th century turbocharged this, allowing our global population to increase fourfold, from about 1.5 billion people in 1900 to over 6 billion people by the turn of the millennium. But by today, another two decades and another few billion people on the planet, it's clear that things are not going brilliantly. Around the world, many farmers are struggling to run viable businesses with low margins and high costs. The environment is straining under what we know is an unsustainable system of feeding ourselves. And yet, the world population is projected to hit almost 10 billion people by 2050. More mouths than ever to feed. I believe part of the solution to these huge problems lies in innovations brought forward by agricultural technology businesses, also known as agritech or agtech. This is a six-part podcast series in which I'm going to attempt to unravel complex interrelationships between agriculture, business and entrepreneurship in an effort to find answers to some of these problems, new ways of thinking and tangible actions that can be applied in the real world. Throughout the series, we'll be hearing from farmers, investors, entrepreneurs and thought leaders from all over the world in an effort to lay out new and better ways forward. spent decades around food, agriculture and business. I grew up in a farming community. My career included a lot of time working for large international companies, including many years at the retailer Tesco. I did an MBA at Stanford Graduate School of Business, but then changed from big corporate life to acquiring and running a company of my own, which works with global plant breeders and seed producers. I also have advisory and board member roles with several organisations in the agtech world. All this is perhaps an unusual combination, but it's given me a real insight into both agricultural technology and the global food system. I come to this work with an unshakable optimism about innovation, a faith in entrepreneurship, and a huge respect for the skill and tenacity it takes to be successful in agriculture and horticulture. I've been asking questions for years about how we could be using technology to do things better, develop sustainable agriculture, food systems that will support our growing global population, give farmers and farm workers around the world a decent life, and do all that without destroying the planet we live on. This podcast investigation started by asking myself how we encourage more entrepreneurial success in this area how we create a more vibrant entrepreneurial ecosystem. I initially thought I'd explore what we in the UK could learn from other parts of the world, but it quickly became clear that I wasn't asking the right question. I needed to think more broadly than that. And in any event, it was clear that the solutions do not sit within any country's boundaries. They're international. In the course of this investigation, I'll keep coming back to certain questions. Whose interests are we serving? What are we optimising for? And how are all these pieces interrelated? 
I will own it. Much of my focus is on the developed world, but like the problems we face, the context is global. But before we get to that, we need to start with the basics. Why do we need new technologies in agriculture? This is the first question, the one I'll explore in this episode. So why do we need more technology in agriculture? Let's start with labour. Over the last hundred years, well, since the Industrial Revolution really, there's been a steady decline in the number of people globally working in agriculture. In part due to mechanisation, but in part also due to workers leaving the industry. Agricultural work often relies on many pairs of hands doing gruelling, repetitive, uncomfortable and sometimes dangerous work. In the developing world, this is a major reason subsistence farmers frequently aspire for a different life for their children. Children that eventually migrate into cities. It's also why in the richer world, economies struggle to find enough locals willing to be agricultural labourers. This aversion to domestic agricultural labour was painfully highlighted in recent years when COVID-19 travel restrictions meant seasonal migrant labour was in short supply. Even industry giants have felt the labour pinch, as Juliet Ansel, the head of global science innovation at the kiwi fruit giant Zespri International, explained. In 2021, we had a shortfall of 4,500 people. Um, and we've predicted that that's going to be at least six and a half to seven thousand next next season. At the peak harvest time, it means we're twenty percent short. And the impact in that is that we're comp- we're compromised. You know, um, we're picking more fruit with less labour. It's not harvested at, at the optimum quality. We had to extend the harvest picking. So you know, the fruit's been slightly too long, um, and then that flows into the supply chain. So we get. Um, problems with soft fruit. Um, soft fruit affects other fruit and there's food waste. In terms of what that cost us, we've um, estimated that's about $440 million of revenue that will, will have cost us. So how did we get to the point that so few people want to work in agriculture? From my perspective, it can be a fascinating and incredibly rewarding sector, but clearly it's not like that for everyone. To understand the root of this labour challenge, we need to look at history, says Sarah Mock, an agricultural and rural issues writer and researcher. She noted agriculture has a long history of using cheap or free labour. That might be family and child labour or the historical system of serfdom. For a long time, in many countries such as the US, it was slavery that kept productivity up and labour costs down. She explained that in the colonial era, to own land required putting it to use. Looking at the history of of labor in America, one of the key reasons why enslaved farm labor was required in the United States was because too few people owned too much land. Coming to the United States, suddenly people had control of, individuals had control of tens of thousands of acres, hundreds of thousands of acres, but didn't actually have any cash, didn't actually have the resources to put that land to work. And what did you do if you had a ton of land that you got for free by way of, you know, royal declaration, uh, but you didn't have any cash to hire Europeans to farm in the European style. So how do you turn no money 
and a lot of land into productive agriculture land, well, you need something for free. And the thing that we got for free or basically that Euro-Americans, Europeans got for free was was enslaved people uh, in their labor. Sarah suggests that slave labor set the foundations of much of modern agriculture because the massive plantations and farms that allowed created the expectation of cheap and abundant food. Her research is focused on the farming system in the USA, but the questions she poses are uncomfortable for many other parts of the world. This was not territory I was expecting to be delving into, but it's perhaps an example of an uncomfortable truth we prefer not to think too hard about when we're putting food in our mouths. Although slavery has technically been abolished, its legacy, the expectations of low-cost commodity crops and food staples, has continued to influence agriculture to this day. You know, I think the idea that slavery is not going on in the world today is a bit misleading. There definitely is slavery, and probably the food system is the number one place that still has it. But I think it pales in comparison to what the Atlantic Slave Trade Watch was, which was this dynastic, like truly deep, you know, people born of slaves were enslaved and generations and generations of people were enslaved. And what that meant in terms of wealth accumulation for people who owned enslaved people um, and what that meant in terms of lowering labor costs in agriculture and keeping them exceptionally low over time. Certainly part of that is about holding down costs and that the cost of food is you know, meant to because of growth economics and the nature of a commodity system are supposed to fall over time. And, you know, if the biggest cost on your balance sheet is labor, how do you make labor costs fall over time when people want more money over time, not less? So, yeah, you know, I think that is kind of the root that underlies our labor system today, whether or not we want to acknowledge it. Modern labour laws outline protections such as minimum wages, workplace safety and working hours. But it's widely acknowledged that agriculture is still an industry often marred with labour issues. In particular, Sarah goes on, while grain crops have been largely mechanised, dairy and horticultural production in particular is still reliant on cheap and often undocumented human labour. If the local labour force refuses to work in the low-paid, physically challenging workplaces that agriculture so often presents, and yet businesses can gain access to cheap, often immigrant or international labour, it creates an environment where exploitation becomes possible. Shipping in workers from economically weaker countries, for example the USA's H-2A Temporary Agricultural Workers Visa Programme, can on one hand create much-needed work for those people, which shares some wealth, but it also continues to conceal very real problems in food production. Reliance on cheap labour to keep costs down is implicitly part of the way the system is expected to operate to keep businesses viable. To this day, agriculture still enjoys essentially universal exemptions from labour law. It is like... You know, we know that farm workers die and at an exceptionally high rate on farms. We know that they are largely unprotected in terms of, you know, safety, health and safety. Um, you know, workers within the H-2A program are more protected, I suppose, than um, than undocumented workers, say, in the dairy industry. But, you know, both of those sets of workers can be incredibly vulnerable, be put in incredibly vulnerable situations. And we've built systems that create blind spots. Um, you know, we use farmers or growers or processors use labor contractors instead of hiring people directly themselves. They 
um, you know, a myriad of ways to create deniability, to create space, to create cracks that people can, that vulnerable people can fall through. I'm going to split the dairy industry apart from the produce industry to firstly say there are billionaire farmers in produce, right? Like there are like millions, if not billions of dollars available in produce. I don't think we there's like a good excuse in there about like we can't afford to pay people. You can afford to pay people. Um, we just don't force anyone to. And if you're not being I don't know if you're not being forced to if there's no regulation, then like what? no one's going to do it voluntarily. No one's going to start paying, you know, their their agricultural laborers thirty dollars an hour just because they're like, well, they're valuable and they are important to us. And we think it's important. So you might think, well, why don't we just raise wages for farm workers? That would seem like a, an obvious solution. But for many farm businesses, they're already being squeezed from both sides of the supply chain. What I'm hearing from farmers on the ground is more about like weight raising wages. But agricultural wages are so low that it is truly difficult to like you'd have to, you know, doubling wages might make a difference. But is that really possible for most businesses? No. In any event, it's not just about money. Agriculture in the UK this year had some serious labour shortage issues, and some farms offered £30, nearly US dollars per hour, to harvest produce. But they still couldn't find enough workers. The work is often seasonal and frequently remains physically demanding and uncomfortable. So perhaps AgTech can contribute to improving the human working conditions to help close that gap. When um, people that um, are looking into the future see things as a problem, they're not often felt by the people delivering the operational side. Um, when the operational people start to feel the pinch, it's too late. That's Juliet Ansel from Zespri International again. She explained that her company is already invested in the development and use of novel agricultural technologies in an effort to support the ongoing growth of the company. I asked her about how Zespri are looking to AgTech for assisting their human labour force. I mean, I think our growers are definitely aware there's a lot of technology out there. Um, and I think it's been really accelerated in our in, internally in our business because of the pain that was felt last harvest. In terms of helping with harvesting, we can look first of all at human assist. So the Apple industry have been looking at something like this, which is a, a sort of a picking platform. So it's still basically people doing the picking, but you make their lives easier, faster maintaining quality. So there's various different prototypes that we're working on or about to start working on, I should say, in that human assist area. So one of the problems with the kiwifruit canopy is that it's actually, depending on how tall you are, it's just, just you know, not quite tall enough to get under. It's not like apple rose. So I guess the other other solution we're thinking about is actually designing the architecture of the orchard to make it much more amenable to robotics. Mm. So yeah, we are thinking about robotics, but because that's longer term, that needs time to develop. And yeah, eventually we would have hopefully a, a selective automatic harvester that can go 24 hours a day up and down or up and down, depending on how we're growing then. So AgTech could still mean a significant improvement to the conditions in which the work takes place. 
Timing is also critical for many harvests. Being able to mobilise hundreds of workers in a short period of time is both financially and logistically really challenging. Everything we need to do is squashed into very short time windows. So, I mean, we have a whole industry and a whole picking and packing labour force that really only picks over a couple of months. And we need to pick the fruit in optimum condition in order to ensure the quality. We're still a long way off from the futuristic world of completely automated systems, although there are a lot of robotics and AI companies working on this. And yet even being able to make a really challenging job a little less challenging would be useful, suggests Sarah Mock. Some of these jobs just like, perhaps there's no good version. Like perhaps there's no good version of picking and bundling garlic for like 12 hours a day, which is, it has to be done like very quickly. Like there's a very small window to do it. So unless you can get, you know, 2000 people to show up somehow at your field and get it all done in a few hours. Um, I don't know how you would make that job, you know, not super repetitive, not, not, you know, stooping, um, not like damaging to people's bodies. Uh, So technology might be able to just make those jobs less miserable and then maybe the job there would be to manage the technology or to hold like maybe it's not you know a giant picker it's like a handheld something or it's a tool that you use while you're just like standing up instead of slouching over or it's you know a mechanized thing that you don't have to bunch and wrap the garlic with your hands you can do it with like a tool that doesn't you know lead to repetitive injuries so maybe there's space for technology that does that It has to be a good thing if technology makes farm work less dangerous and gruelling. And yet there may be other implications. If the technology is just a giant tractor that or a giant, you know, piece of equipment that does that all, you know, plucks 12 rows at a time and packages it. And at the end, you just have like a giant bin full of garlic after, you know, three passes through the field and it took you half a day. I guess that's good that a human didn't have to do that work and damage their body in that way. But at the same time, now all you have is just a lot of unemployed people. You're likely already getting an idea of how complex and interwoven agricultural labour issues are. AgTech is not a one-stop shop for solving these issues. Immigration reform, conditions and wages, improved health and safety will also need to be addressed to attract and retain the future workforce alongside the greater use of technology. But beyond the labour economics of agriculture, there's another even more pressing concern facing the global agricultural and food system, the environment. Whether we like it or not, agriculture is, as a whole, really bad for the environment. Agriculture is one of humanity's crowning achievements. The fact that the human population has exploded but fewer people die from starvation than ever before is amazing. But fundamentally, however we do it, feeding 8 billion people and growing takes a huge toll on our planet. And yet, while we can envisage a world without using fossil fuels or single-use plastics, we can't have a world without food. So when we're looking at, let's say we're talking about climate change, you know, we tend to focus a lot on um, the other sectors. We might talk about transportation. 
We might talk about buildings. We might talk about electricity, and those are all bad. But food systems themselves, all the acts of producing the food, land use, you know, wasting food and what that does in landfills, you know, that contributes about 29% of total global greenhouse gas emissions. 29%, so one-third. That's Brent Loken, global food lead scientist at the WWF. His work involves understanding the science behind the cause and effects of climate change, agricultural industries, and the food system in an effort to find a sustainable balance for the future. When we're talking about biodiversity loss, we tend to see images of trees being cut down and you know all these terrible things that are happening. But that is mainly driven by food and the food that we choose to eat and, and how we actually produce it. When we're talking about water use, you know, we're seeing a lot right now in terms of uh, rivers running dry and, and just the extreme droughts that we're seeing in you know, some parts of the world. 70% of all fresh water that's used is actually driven by food to irrigate our crops. So a lot of the environmental damage that we're seeing today, you know, exceeding and actually crossing these planetary boundaries that we're seeing is driven by food and how we actually produce it and the food that we actually consume. So it's, uh, you know, it's probably the single largest driver of environmental degradation on our planet. We're starting to realize that we cannot address the environmental crisis that we're facing without fixing our food system. So how does almost one third of all greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture and the food system? I asked Francesco Tubiello, a senior officer at the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, to break it down for me. Up to a third of all of the emissions, when you think about food systems, can be linked to agricultural and food activities. Specifically, agriculture thought as farm gate emissions, so those that come from processes directly linked to, to crop and livestock activities, cover about 10% of the total emissions in the world. Another more or less equal amount is added by those emissions caused by land use changes. So let's say, quote-unquote, destruction of ecosystems and natural ecosystems to make space for for production. So that adds another 10%. And then just recently, we've begun uh, quantifying emissions along the supply chains. So what happens after food leaves the farm and it gets processed and then distributed and then eaten at home and all that stuff. And that adds, you know, it's it's an easy rule of thumb to remember, it's, a, it's the other 10%. So we go up to the third that I mentioned before. The primary greenhouse gases emitted as a result of agriculture are nitrous oxide, methane, and CO2, or carbon dioxide. Emissions from within the farm gate are mostly non-CO2. And about half of this category, that's 5% of the global greenhouse gas emissions, is methane. It's fair to say that livestock, especially ruminants, are the key factor in methane production, although rice paddies are also a significant contribution. The other half of this within-farmgate influence is nitrous oxide, which is mainly linked to the nitrogen cycle and especially synthetic fertiliser use. By contrast, land use change and post-farmgate impact is largely a result of CO2. Land use change in particular is often perceived as not connected to agriculture, going by the acronym LULUCF, Land Use, Land Use Change and Forestry. LULUCF is an interesting term because it sounds neutral, except that it's not true, right? Because the majority of the land use and land use change components of that acronym are actually, you know, directly linked to agriculture. 
And so whether it's the drainage of peatlands or deforestation, right, which we haven't mentioned yet, you, you see that that's a component that it's, it's uh, largely driven, not only depends on the part of the world, but largely driven by the need for additional land. Francesco also noted the link between higher emissions and land use changes clear when you review the global top 10 countries for greenhouse gas emissions. We sometimes hear that it's all about livestock or the rich developed countries with high intensity farming that creates the most emissions. But developing countries are having a big effect too. The balance gets flipped by land use change because whereas modern industrial agriculture is already developed along its efficiency pathways to, to produce more with less, as we say, right? So having, quote-unquote, high efficiencies of production, so you can do that on a limited amount of land. In many developing countries, not all, but many, especially the ones that are moving from traditional to modern, this transition is linked to significant conversion of land into more production. And that land usually comes from, from natural ecosystems. So that destruction, the sheer destruction of the biomass and the soil carbon and the alteration of those natural fluxes brings with it significant amount of emission. He also notes that the rich world finger wagging at the developing world for land use change is unhelpful. Let's remember that, you know, in the eight, 10,000 years in which agriculture has developed, I mean, we in the so-called developed world have done our bit of deforesting our, our lands to, to produce the fields that we see today. So it's a big story that uh, doesn't have culprits, I think. It's better to characterize it that way. Part of the issue surrounding agriculture and the environment is that it's a global issue, but the effects, and therefore solutions, must be considered on a national and local level too. There is no one-size-fits-all solution, as Brent Loken explains. When we tend to talk about the impacts of the global food system, we talk about it globally. But the thing about it is, is impacts are mostly felt locally. And the impacts are very different depending upon regions and, you know, where you're thinking. But it's different depending upon which environmental impact that you're actually talking about. If you're talking about water use, that's going to have to be dealt with within like individual watersheds. So in some watersheds, uh, the impact is quite high. So if you look at places like the Colorado River, that impact is very high. Other water systems are actually, um, the water use is actually okay. They're not you know, exceeding their environmental limits. Biodiversity loss is also felt very differently. Um, at the moment, uh, most of the biodiversity loss is felt within the tropics. You know, it's these cutting down of these old growth ancient forests that we're seeing that have extremely high levels of biodiversity. Most of that is actually driven by food. Uh, whereas in other parts of the world, they're seeing trees coming back and actually a net positive gain of trees. Just like the effects of climate change affecting different parts of the world in different ways, the technology solutions that are needed will vary both from geography and the type of farming practice in that geography. The technologies that might work on an industrial farming system might be very different than the technologies that will work on small shareholder farmers, of which there are hundreds of millions you know, all over the world. And uh, being able to get those technologies into places that actually need them is also going to be very difficult. You know, the last thing that we want to do is create a two-tier system where we have all the technology going into certain places, which, you know, benefits the same group of people uh, versus making sure that the people that need it the most, you know, these farmers that farm under 
two hectares of land, um, you know, they also need access to this same type of technology. Whichever way we slice it, on pretty much all environmental issues, we'll find agriculture's fingerprints. It might be unintentional and it might be the result of an amazing mobilisation of human ingenuity to feed ourselves, but it is there. So a second important role of technology is to find ways to reduce this impact. And let's also remember that the effects of climate change are most definitely being felt by the very industry that's helping to create it, meaning even more challenges and potential global food shortages in the future. Also, let me say that when we talk about climate change, we always think of the role that agriculture has on the climate, you know, forgetting that agriculture is perhaps the prime human sector that, that stands to lose from climate change. There can be such a characterization because it's exposed to climate that is changing you know, in the bad ways that we know. Widespread development and adoption of agricultural technology to help minimize both labor issues and environmental issues might sound like an easy fix. But there is more than one part of the puzzle that we need to look at. Any change, be it raising wages or implementing climate-friendly agricultural techniques, comes with a price tag. From a business perspective, investing in making changes that will benefit your business in the long term makes perfect sense. But for a vast number of farm businesses around the world, just breaking even is a challenge and making a profit even more so. According to the research website Full Fact, referring to the UK, quote, across all farms, subsidies make up around 57% of the total profit on average. Taken as a whole, farming is not a very profitable business to be in. A lot of our farm leaders say, you know, it's hard to think green when you're constantly in the red. And that's very true. Ethan Cleary is in charge of the technology and innovation policy within the Irish Farmers Association, the largest agri-representative body in Ireland. Farmers are very justifiably worried about how this is going to affect and change how they make money, how they produce food, how they actually have a livelihood. While Ethan is echoing the sentiments of Irish farmers, the same can be heard from farmers all across the world. Farming, especially small to medium-sized farming, is more often than not a loss-making business activity before any subsidies. So why is this and can technology make a difference? In simple terms, this is a product of the structure of the industry. Indulge me while I share a little MBA-type academic theory with you to illustrate this point. There's a famous model called Porter's Five Forces, a way of characterising the competitive forces in an industry. Three of these, especially relevant to this discussion, are the bargaining power of suppliers, the bargaining power of customers, and rivalry among competitors in the market. In agriculture, farmers themselves are made up of relatively small companies in the middle layer of a sandwich. They're typically squeezed between the much greater bargaining power of very large, highly consolidated customers, supermarkets, grain companies, etc., who largely set prices, and the bargaining power of the very large, highly consolidated suppliers, seed, feed, chemical and equipment companies, who determine the cost of production. It's a perfect recipe for poor margins across the industry as a whole. Layer onto that, two other factors. Firstly, much of agriculture produces for and sells into commodity markets. 
In commodity markets, the goods are pretty much interchangeable. A particular class of corn or type of wheat can be aggregated from thousands of different farms and sold as one consistent lot. This system does have a lot of benefits. For example, it allows a bread-making company to obtain enough flour of the right type and quality without having to do deals with and quality check the produce of dozens or hundreds of farmers who might be located around the world. It's also great for consumers and for the overall price of food, because over time the price of a commodity falls, with ups and downs for changes in demand and supply, to little more than the cost of production. But this is exactly why it's hard on farmers. Almost by definition, this commodity structure, which characterises so many of our agricultural goods, results in many farmers having to sell into the commodity market at or below the cost of production, meaning minimal profits or even losses across the industry as a whole. Secondly, the scale and professionalism of farms greatly affects the skills available to help deliver a profit consistently. Most farms are relatively small businesses, and like all smaller businesses, it means fewer seriously professionalised staff focusing on single responsibilities. Large farms may be able to afford marketing, business development and finance teams, for example. Whereas on smaller farms, it may be one person doing it all. Moreover, unlike other sectors such as medicine or construction, many farmers inherit their businesses. If they have relevant training, it often covers a multitude of farming-related skills, but not necessarily business management. And if it happens that a farmer's interests or talents lie in other areas than the business side, they can simply be outmaneuvered by others in the value chain. A lack of profit makes it hard to invest, and this can further reduce the resources to compete. The strategic importance of agriculture, the commodity system, and the fact that so many farms are small businesses are among the reasons given for government subsidies. An OECD study of 54 countries estimated that a combined sum of over 700 billion US dollars of subsidies are handed out to farmers globally almost every year. Government subsidies are, in part, aimed to mitigate challenges that the agriculture sector uniquely faces, given the importance of its role in ensuring national food security. However, this is a huge and highly controversial area. Agricultural subsidies can have intentional and unintentional market-distorting effects, both nationally and globally. Plus, philosophically, should we rely on subsidies? Would we tolerate it in any other sector? After all, New Zealand famously ditched agricultural subsidies in the 1980s, and they have a healthy agricultural sector. Surely it's simply better to have a thriving and profitable agricultural industry, rather than relying on subsidies to close the gap. So could technology help to make farming more profitable? Well, maybe. It won't solve all the problems, but it certainly may be able to assist in things like transparency and traceability in the food system. This, in turn, allows farmers to capture more market share or demand higher margins if they're using practices that consumers value, such as exemplary environmental stewardship or particularly humane animal treatment. Technology can also help assist humans in planting, animal husbandry and harvesting, as we talked about earlier. This, in turn, may lead to savings, either in labour costs or through more profitable end products, 
such as by harvesting faster for optimum quality and less wastage. It could also help farmers to find new routes to market, something we'll hear more about in later episodes. In short, new technologies can seriously disrupt existing industries and shift where the profit pools sit. Just ask industry giants who have had their businesses disrupted by new innovations, like the once giant photographic film company Kodak or the video rental company Blockbuster. But this is not a given. There are some seriously entrenched and powerful dynamics at play. In truth, this might be one of the weakest reasons to believe that new technology will change agriculture. Why? Because as with the environment and labour issues, farm profitability is a product of the way our agricultural and food systems work. There are a series of forces, feedback loops, structures and incentives that create the outcomes we see around us. We're going to hear a lot about systems in this series. So before I wrap up this episode, I want to touch on what this concept of systems means. Donella Meadows is a highly influential scientist and author known for her work on systems thinking. She defines a system as, quote, an interconnected set of elements that is coherently organized in a way that achieves something, end quote. The purpose of the food system is to ensure humans have food to eat and is itself made up of and connected to other systems, the health system, the economy, the environment. So what is the food system? Brent Loken broke it down for me. So a food system is everything that we do to get the food from the farm to the fork. Uh, So it's everything from how we produce food and the environmental consequences of that, how we actually transport food to get it from where it's produced, all the processing that goes into the food, and then the waste. So if we throw you know, food away, throw it into the garbage, it goes into the waste dump. So it's, it's all of those systems and processes that we put into, the, into the, this complex web of activities that we call the food system. There is one global food system, which is this interconnected um, local and regional food system. So there's, you know, food systems everywhere. There's food systems in, you know, backyards, there's food systems within cities. Uh, but when you add up all those collective activities, you've got the global food system and the impact that that has. We're already beginning to see in this story how massively intertwined all these issues are. Not only does this bring together lots of different industries, it also means that when we're thinking of food, we're switching back and forth between global, national and regional pictures. So, you know, you're having a meal and your meal is composed of uh Uh, maybe a little bit of meat, fruits and vegetables, and maybe some legumes, right? Most of the time, that food comes from all over the planet. So you might get fruits and veggies uh, and an avocado shipped in from Mexico, right? Uh, You might get uh, lettuce greens shipped in from, I know, some other place. You might get the meat, which is maybe locally produced, and then you might get uh, the legumes or rice shipped in from Brazil or China or some other place, right? So, So anytime that we're having a meal, most likely that meal comes from many different countries. Now, I know that there is a push at the moment to localize food production and to eat locally. And I think when and where possible, that is great. But at the end of the day, we're never going to be able to 
completely localized food systems. There's always going to have to be some sort of transport and trade of food, and there's always going to have to be, there will be some sort of impact from that. You know, and that's one of the things that we have to realize with this food system is that uh, it is a global food system. And that moving forward, as we add more people into it, and as more people get access to more food, and we're trying to lift individuals out of poverty and make sure that everybody has access to healthy food, not just food, but healthy food, uh, that's going to require more trade in food, um, more of this global connections than what we have right now. Um, and uh, that's something that we're going to have to definitely start to wrap our heads around. Um, so it's a very globalized, interconnected system. In short, these problems are extremely complicated. And when we're thinking about systems, we need to use a different set of tools to when we're thinking about how to improve one particular piece of a problem, because lots of issues are connected, as Sarah Mock noted. You just can't pull on one string, like because the way you pull on one string affects every other string in agriculture. And the thing is, every other string involves things it like just goes to the zenith. You know, you can't create an agricultural technology without affecting poverty. You can't affect an agricultural technology without affecting immigration reform. You can't like, it goes in so many different directions at so at such a velocity that, you know, I think we think of tech, we think of ag tech kind of alongside like the guy who's making like a laundry delivery app. And it's like, it's just different to build technology in agriculture. It just, it just is more complex. It's a more complex world. It's a more complex context. And just as there is no one-size-fits-all answer, we also need to recognise the technologies we will need will be different depending on where you are in the world. As Brent Loken noted earlier, in some places, to stop converting more wild land into agricultural land, we'll need to use existing or new technologies to increase production, to make more from less. In other places, it's not about the need for new technologies, but about the need for improved human coordination. A smallholder farmer might need more fertilizer, meaning they need to be able to buy it, know how to use it, and avoid causing localized environmental damage. We also need to think about how we distribute food so that everyone has access to it and less goes to waste. It's not necessarily about increasing production, but making sure that we make the most of what we do produce and that it's efficiently and equitably distributed. What we need to do is we need to, we need to start connecting the dots between some of those knowledge systems. But what, what we don't need, though, um, we don't need to kick the can down the road and say we just have to rely on technologies. We just have to rely on some invention of something that's going to come in and save us and reduce you know, methane emissions or make farming practices all the more environmentally friendly because we know what exactly we have to do. We have the practices in hand. It's more uh, just creating the conditions and you know allowing them to happen. Technology is a tool in the box. Much like the hype that goes with entrepreneurship, we mustn't swallow the line that tells us that technology will solve all our problems. Policy, politics, international trade deals, ethics, consumer demand, and so on will all play a role. But technology does matter, and it's an important ingredient, and that's why it's a focus for this series. We need new technology in agriculture for lots of reasons, and among them are reducing the environmental impact of agriculture, whether we're talking about feeding the current human population or the population of the future. 
increased water use efficiency, waste reduction, reduced greenhouse gas emissions, less pollution and agricultural runoff are all needed, as well as reducing land use change. We also need technology to meet labour shortages and to make agricultural work less gruelling and damaging for workers. And we need it to help keep the most vital industry on the planet economically healthy. Without agriculture, the entire human population will suffer. But if farmers can't make a living, improve their businesses or raise their families while keeping a roof over their heads, the situation will only get worse. We've seen at high level that technology can be really useful in tackling these types of issues, but it's certainly not the only option available to us. Tackling these complex problems will need a systemic approach, as well as localised technical solutions. I am confident that AgTech is part of the solution to the problems agriculture is facing globally. And hopefully this episode has highlighted why I believe this is the case. But you might be scratching your head about how and why entrepreneurs fit into this puzzle. Join me for the next episode and I'll answer that question when we dive into the world of the entrepreneur. I'll be exploring why entrepreneurs may hold solutions to problems that the existing players in the agricultural world do not, the opportunities and challenges they face, and the dark underbelly of entrepreneurship that we so often gloss over. Until next time. Thank you for listening. I asked my interviewees for recommended background reading about the topics we discussed in each episode. You can find many of these and other references I found helpful in the show notes. For more information on AgTech entrepreneurship, including interviews with the contributors and other AgTech resources, visit agtechthinking.com. I would like to thank the Elizabeth Creek Charitable Trust for their generous support, which made this podcast possible. The project arose as a response to being accepted as a 2020 Nuffield Farming Scholar, but finding my travel plans were frustrated by the COVID-19 pandemic.